Our scripture reading for today comes from 1 John 5, 4b through 12. Please follow along with me as I read 1 John 5, 4b through 12. This is the conquering power that has conquered the world, our faith. Now who is the person who has conquered the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Jesus Christ is the one who came by water and blood, not by the water only, but by water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three are in agreement. If we accept the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, because this is the testimony of God, that he has testified concerning his Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe, God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has testified concerning his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. The one who has the Son has the eternal life. The one who does not have the Son of God does not have this eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you for this journey that we've had through 1 John. We know we'll wrap it up next week, but we're reminded time and time again by the Apostle of your love for us, the surety of our faith, and the life that we can have not only in eternity, but for now. And Lord, those words are echoed once again in this passage, and we just ask that you would guide us as we go to the text. Thank you for your word, in Jesus' name, amen. If you would, turn to 1 John chapter 5, verse 4. That's where we're starting today. Next week, we'll end our journey through this little epistle. And aren't you glad we are moving? We have one more week here, so take note of that. Uh, I felt like I should have pumpkin pie for lunch. I don't know why. Um, anyone want a pumpkin latte? Uh, pumpkin spice this? Yes. Uh, this is all part of their musical. Uh, at first, I thought our interior decorators for the stage set really got carried away today. So I love it. That's awesome. Recently, we witnessed the attack of the newly elected House Speaker Mike Johnson because of his faith in Christ. Various media, media outlets describe Johnson's faith as Christo-fascist or religious fundamentalist. And one prominent HBO host likened Johnson's fanaticism for Christianity to the mental illness witnessed in the recent Maine mass shooting. Yes. Rhetoric that once was confined in the dark hallways of academia have seeped into the mainstream thought of today. Undoubtedly, extremely disturbing, or at least I hope it is for you. 
such venomous verbal attacks really should not be surprising. Our pluralistic society with an anti-revelational epistemology that rejects the one reliable and authoritative source, that is God's word, creates a grave problem and in particular in identifying Jesus Christ. The problem isn't new today. The problem was also back at the time when John pins this epistle. We've seen in our journey already twice that one of the assurances of how do you know you're really saved? John says, well, look at three areas. How's your conduct? Is it righteous? Two, how are you doing in loving one another? We looked at that last week. And the third is a proper Christology. Understanding that is, study of Jesus, who is this Jesus? As aptly noted by Stephen Wellham in his most recent book, God the Son Incarnate, he says, we are reminded that the, most that the importance of the person of Christ places Christology at the center of all theological reflection and formation. And I concur wholeheartedly. John understands this. And in this section, he reminds us who is this Jesus and the implications it has for all those who place their faith in him. So let's look and see what he has to say. It actually, four, we've broken into two sections. In one way, it summarizes the first part, what was seen in the previous section, and the second part of verse four serves as a springboard into this next. So let's look at verse four in its entirety. Because everyone who has been fathered by God conquers the world. This is the conquering power that has conquered the world, namely our faith. As we said, John has concluded the previous section about that we are more than conquerors through God who dwells in us, that is, the, through the Spirit, and our, and our faith serves as the hinge, as is noted here in verse 4. Faith has been defined in Scripture as something that gives credence. It, it, it holds something or someone as true. And John says, you've put your arms, you've embraced this Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah, as the Son of God. And he wants to come back to this. And he says here in verse 5, now, who is the person who's conquered the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? There's a couple things to note if you're, you're jotting down some things here. Let me give you a couple here. First of all, notice what John states in the verse 4. It is our faith. It's personal. Uh, I wrote here, it, it, it has to be our own. It can't be something, well, this is what my parents believed. This is what the church I grew up in believed. No, it, it is our faith. We've, we own this, he says. Secondly, I would argue, based on the text, the power here is abiding result of our new birth. Notice it says that this conquering power that has conquered the world. It's something that occurred in the past and it has ongoing effect. Now, many scholars will argue, well, that was Christ's death on the cross. I don't think so. The immediate context is our faith. That is the point when we were born again. It's, it's when we came to an understanding that I am a sinner, I need Christ's gift that he accomplished on the cross and his, his death, burial, and resurrection, and I place faith in that. 
And it is that point that I would argue that the conquering, the power that it dwells. And then third, the power of this faith derives from one's union with a victorious Christ. Notice he says, it is who believes, verse 5, Jesus is the Son of God. It's interesting, chapter 5, verse 1, states everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ. Now he says it's the Son of God. Because what we're going to see here is ultimately God is the one who is orchestrating these things, overseeing these things, and that's going to be highlighted here in this passage. We who've placed our faith in Christ are identified with the one who's overcome. I love John 16. Jesus states, In the world you will have tribulations. <laughs> Thank you. Didn't need you to tell us that. Good to know, Lord. Right? You're, you're going to have suffering, struggles. But it says, Be of good cheer, John states, or Jesus states in John 16, I have overcome the world. And so, as John is highlighting here, we have this conquering power because of our faith that is rooted in Christ via the Holy Spirit. We're on the winning team. <laughs> There's no chance of an injury to the star player. There's no potential upset down the road in this season. No, no, no. The championship is guaranteed because it's in Christ. Amen? Amen, right? So the implication there in your notes, we may not know where the Lord is leading, but we can rest in knowing the one who leads. Our all-loving, all-powerful Lord has assured us of the victory. So we're called to live victoriously, are we not? That means not slipping back into the world. Uh, that's the enemy's territory. Terms that Scripture uses, friendship with the world, loving the world, being conformed to the world. And Romans 12, 2 says to believers, do not be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may test and approve what is the will of God, what is good and well-pleasing and perfect. Remember, the world doesn't want you to be successful they do not want you to reflect the one who is victorious. That is, they do not want you to become like Christ. Far from it. And unless we run to Christ, unless we bask in his presence, rest at his feet, I would argue we are destined to lose. We'll be defeated. And so living victorious is not going back to the things of the world. But secondly, it's living confidently because of the person and work of Christ. We have a new outlook. <laughs> I can view things differently because I'm in Christ. Remember, this was the whole purpose of why John is writing. This fellowship that you have with the Lord and the joy that then comes from this. This is why Paul can write in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul's in prison when he writes that. But in the grand scheme of things... Uh, you know, this isn't for a basketball game. <laughs> I can do all things through Christ. No, no, no. This is a bigger picture that's being painted and who we are because of Jesus. And thus we fear God, not man or woman. Galatians 2, 20. I have been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
So the life I now live in the body, I live because of the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And we must never forget that while the victory is found in Christ, we are still waging a spiritual battle, are we not? This past week, I had an individual from our church say, you know, one of the things that we really need to be praying for is that we're in a spiritual battle. And I said, you are not kidding. <laughs> as much as we're excited about the 19th and being in our new home, Satan is not. And he's alive and well. But we have victory in Jesus. And that's what John is trying to highlight here as he's, remember, we're writing to a group of believers who they've had some voices speaking into the congregation that do not want them to swear allegiance to this Jesus as described in Scripture. He says, be very careful. In 1939, at age 53, Eugene Bartlett's world was turned upside down because he had a massive stroke. It paralyzed him. He was unable to walk or even speak, which was horrific for a man who was a music pastor and teacher. In those dark days that he was bedridden, Eugene penned his best-known hymn, many of you know it, Victory in Jesus. <laughs> I heard an old, old story how a Savior came from glory, how he gave his life on Calvary to save a wretch like me. I hear about his groaning of his precious blood atoning. Then I repented of my sins and won the victory. <laughs> oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew him, and all my love is due him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing blood. Isn't that awesome? The first time that was sang at a revival, 50 individuals came to know Christ. It's a, it is so true. Our victory is in Christ and our faith is rooted in him and we have fellowship with him. John's not done because in verses six through eight, he is now going to give us the validation of this faith. Because again, there are those outside this camp that John is writing to who are saying, yeah, you really can't believe this Jesus. Really? <laughs> And, and so John writes in verse 6, Jesus Christ is the one who came by water and blood. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. Now, I don't know about you. When I, I read this, I kind of immediately go, huh? <laughs> what are you saying, John? Because apparently for that audience, they understood exactly what John is saying. But for us, I think, living in this day, we're going, what's he talking about? So let's unpack this. First, the word witness, we're going to see it will occur as either a noun or a verb over nine times in these next several verses. So take note of that. Uh, as we know, in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 18, if you claim to be a prophet, you have to have two witnesses that validate or we stone you, right? John is going to give us three witnesses, and we'll see that here in a minute. But notice what he says, Jesus Christ is the one who came. That's, that's part of the confession. That's what John has been harping on from day one. We've looked at it, that Christ came into this world. He came into the flesh. He was one of us. And by the way, that coming one motif is not new to the New Testament. Isaiah chapter 40, 
verses 3 and 5, refer to this. Every gospel writer refers to Jesus as the one who has come. This is the coming one. Remember John the Baptist? He talks about this is the coming one. This is the one we have been looking for. In other words, this message about Jesus wasn't based upon a group of insecure Jews who wanted to start a new religion or a bunch of fanatics that had all had bad pizza one night. Mm -mm. No, this is rooted in God himself who has revealed himself to us through his son and he told us all the way back in Isaiah this one would come. And that is why John will write in verse one, verse, well, look at what he writes. Look, turn to the first part of this epistle, this letter. First John chapter one. This is about what we proclaim to you, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen, what we have looked at, and our hands have touched. No, this Jesus became flesh, and he dwelt among us. J.I. Packer writes, Christology is the true hub. Again, Christology is the study of Jesus. It is the true hub around which the wheel of theology revolves and to which is separate spokes must each be correctly anchored in the will and not to get bent. In other words, it, all of this hinges on, on who Christ is. And that, John understands that as he's writing this letter. You take Christ out of the equation, there is no hope. There is no faith. There is no victory. It all hinges on this one who came, who fulfilled the promise. But where, it, again, the confusion lies is John says the water and the blood. And you're going, I, I don't understand that. <clears throat> Scholars have debated, but I think the consensus is accurate in their assessment. The water and the blood refer to two historical facts. The water of Jesus' baptism and the blood of his death. You say, well, why would you reach to that conclusion? Because we know that early strands of heretical teaching called Gnosticism, we won't go down that road, but I will tell you what they believed. They believed that God, Jesus, the Son of God, did not enter Jesus, the Nazareth, the human being, until baptism, and then left before he died. This was the false teaching that was percolating at, starting to percolate when John penned this letter. So again, what they were saying is that Jesus became God at his baptism and then God, the Spirit, left him before he was crucified. That, of course, is called heresy. <laughs> we will bury you in the pumpkins. Uh, that, that doesn't work. And there are so many problems with that. And John understands that. So he, he takes us to the water baptism of Jesus and the crucifixion, the blood, to say these are historical testimonies to who Jesus is. Now let's look at the baptism. Turn to Matthew chapter 3. Let's just look at this, just briefly. Matthew 3, verse 13. Jesus came from Galilee to John. This isn't John the Apostle. This is John the Baptizer. They're two different people. From Galilee to John to be baptized by him in the Jordan River. But John tried to prevent him saying, I need for you to baptize me, and yet you come to me? 
<laughs> John, the baptizer, understands this Jesus is the one we've longed for. You're gonna, you want me to baptize you? I don't think so. Jesus replied to him, let it happen now, for it is right for us to fulfill, watch this, all righteousness. Then John yielded to him. After Jesus was baptized, just as he was coming up out of the water, the heavens opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and landing on him and a voice from heaven saying, this is my one dear son in him. I take great delight. Or you may have, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. The water baptism is extremely significant for Jesus. And let me give you two reasons for the purpose of our study this morning. The first is it's divine ordination. It indicated that Jesus is ready to begin his ministry. It wasn't self-appointed. This is the commissioning of Jesus, the initiation of going to wear the cross. Remember, Jesus stated, I have come to fulfill the will of the Father. What was the will of the Father? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The intent of sending his son is to make atonement for our sins. There are few events in Jesus' life that you will find in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is one of them. And in every occurrence of the baptism as it's recorded by the gospel writers, they mention the Holy Spirit coming down from heaven, the declaration of Jesus' sonship by the Father. It, it confirms to the world of Jesus' deity, and this is the one the Father has sent. So there's a divine ordination, but secondly, as Jesus even stated to John in Matthew 3, it's to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, the baptism foreshadows Jesus' future ministry. S. Lewis Johnson stated the anointing or baptism was not only for Jesus' preaching, it was also for the passion. You see, the baptism of Jesus initiated, I would argue, the path to the cross. And in that event, John is telling us in his epistle, this is a testimony, this is the one. As we've noticed in previous sermons, John often takes us from John's epistle to the cross as well. And that's exactly what he does. Because notice what he says. It's not by water only. If that was all we had, it wouldn't be sufficient. But he says, it's by the water and the blood. And I would argue that is the reference to the cross. The cardinal doctrine of the atonement is in jeopardy if Jesus is not the Son of God. If we've placed our faith in this one and he's not the Son of God then we got serious problems when it comes to the cross because it was God himself who bore our sins and shows us the final reality in the universe is in his sin-bearing, pardoning love. John Stott states it well. It is impossible to hold the historical doctrine of the cross. That is atonement without holding the historical doctrine of Jesus Christ as the one and only God-man and mediator. You place your faith in this one Jesus, this is what it entails. And it's validated by one, the, the baptism, where both 
the Spirit coming down and the Father speaking confirm, but it initiates a ministry that is wrapped up and concluded at the cross. It's at the cross where Jesus declared, it is finished. Only the one who was fully man and fully God could make this declaration because only he could accomplish this task. I love that John is affirming the historical Jesus as he elaborates on our faith. And I think this is a danger in the world today. The theological truths that are rooted in the historical Jesus of Nazareth are stripped from this Christ of faith. If you don't believe me, just go to, well, there aren't many bookstores left today, but <laughs> brick and mortar, go to Barnes & Noble. You'll see books such as the, the Historical Jesus and the Christ of Faith. They'll, they'll try to separate the two. <clears throat> you cannot do that. <clears throat> Excuse me. If we're to reach our present world, we must root the good news of Jesus Christ into the biblical storyline. It's a storyline about a God who's created the world and has entered time and space. He's a personal God. And we as human beings have rebelled. The curse that comes from the rebellion, the need for salvation, and all that was accomplished because we serve a holy, wrathful, and loving God. <laughs> it cannot be stripped. Without that storyline, Jesus is nothing. Four decades ago, Francis Schaeffer, four decades ago, Francis Schaeffer wrote a book, Escape from Reason. He said, the problem that remains today is Jesus has almost become a meaningless word due to its separation from the content and framework of Scripture. If this happens, Schaefer writes, Jesus becomes anything except the Jesus of the Bible. John knows this. <clears throat> John is writing and he's taking us to the historical events that clearly demonstrate they scream, yes, this is the one. This is whom we place our faith in. But John's not done. He gives us two, he gives us three witnesses. Notice in verse eight, the spirit, well actually verse six says, because the spirit is the truth. For the three testify, and the spirit, the water, and the blood all agree. How do we know that John's interpretation of Jesus of Nazareth is correct? The Spirit, who is truth, echoes the same message. The Spirit testifies inwardly and through the preaching of the Word. I mean, look at John 15. When the Advocate comes, the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you, Jesus says, from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who goes out from the Father, will testify about me. John 14, the Holy Spirit will teach you all things and Bring to your remembrance all that I have said. John 16, he, the Spirit, will guide you into all truth. The Spirit validates the message. It validated Jesus at the baptism. It, it validated the message time and time again through the Old Testament via the prophets. And now it's validating the message that, that John is delivering. And it says the water, the blood, and the spirit, they all agree. They're united. You ask, well, how? And, and notice he even says that they continue to speak out the truth. 
You go, well, wait a minute, those were past events. But I think of Hebrews 11, it talks about Abel. The sacrifice of Abel still speaks today. Or the heaps of stones that were put up by Jacob and Laban. It's called an ongoing witness in Joshua 22. And that's the idea here. So John says, we, we have three witnesses that validate, but notice verse 9, if we accept the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, because this is the testimony of God that he has testified, I love this, concerning his son. God's testimony only confirms what the water, the blood, and the spirit have given, and it's greater than men, women. <laughs> Even John the Baptist stated or excuse me, Jesus stated that the testimony that John the Baptist gave was sufficient, but far greater is the testimony of his father. And that's the idea here that we see. You know, one only needs to visit the courtroom here in this, in this land to realize how unreliable or incompetent human witnesses can be, right? Uh, let me give you an example the attorney asked the witness, how old is your son, the one living with you? Witness, 38, 35, I don't remember. Well, how long has he lived with you? 45 years. <laughs> God's witness, his testimony is far sure, and he is behind the threefold witness, and he validates these claims. I mean, think about the Gospels. Think about God's testimony. I mean, we've already seen it with the baptism. This is my beloved son. Here it is. Take it or leave it. All right. He said it at the transfiguration. This is my beloved son. It was seen indirectly in the miracles that Christ performed, even in the resurrection. These were stamps of approval. And so implication for us there in your notes, you can see this, despite life's trials, doubts, and confusions, we can rest in knowing God's word is sure. Our faith rests not on impressions, experiences, feelings, or probabilities, or as we have been accused, listening to we voices, <laughs> but on the person of Christ. thinking through this even this week the lord doesn't owe us a certificate of authenticity he really doesn't even owe us a witness does he he could have said here it is that's the offer or as soren kierkegaard would like to suggest it's just a blind leap in the dark. no the lord in his grace in his sovereignty and love substantiated his son and said no here is testimony that this is true. And because of that, we can echo the words of Hebrews 6, 19 through 20. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, sure and steadfast, which reaches inside behind the curtain. <laughs> that's where the Father says, that's the Holy of Holies. Our hope, our sureness goes all the way in because the text says, this is where Jesus, our forerunner, entered on our behalf. <laughs> wow. Because of Christ, we know that God is faithful in keeping his promises. This is the coming one. This is the son that I promised. It is fulfilled. 
Because of Christ, we have hope for our soul. And because of Christ, we have access to the very throne room of God 24-7. Wow. That is victory. That is a surety that nothing in this world can afford. I pity the HBO host who makes a mockery of the faith. You have no idea what you're saying. The victory that comes, the surety we have when the greatest storms occur in life, we have an anchor. But God's not done. Verses 10 through 11. The one who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made God a liar because he's not believed in the testimony. Now, there's a lot of things in life I regret or wish I would, would never want to do. This is one of them, making God a liar. <clears throat> not a wise move. And we'll see the implications of that here in a minute. Belief occurs three times in this verse. It, it, it's believing in this one. And notice the text tells us this testimony is in ourselves. Via the dwelling of the Holy Spirit, there's an inner reality. Yes, all of this is true. I understand. Trust me, I have been in many bedside death, folks facing death, etc. And it's amazing to me the number of times I hear from believers such comments as, I've experienced God's hand of mercy. I've seen his healing touch. I, I've walked with his arms comforting. I know that my Redeemer lives. How do they know all that? Well, one, it's here. But secondly, it's the Holy Spirit who guides, who comforts, and exhorts. Sadly, if one does not accept God's witness, John is very clear. Again, John is very black and white. Either you love God or you hate him. Either you, you embrace Jesus or you don't. But you, you love your neighbor, you hate him. And he does the same here. The one who does not believe God has made him to be a liar. Now think about the implications of that. Let me give you a couple. One cannot even say God didn't know what he's talking about because the message is very clear. John's making this clearly understand, and it's substantiated. There's witnesses that testify. And so the only viable conclusion that you can make if you deny the witnesses is that God is a fraud. He doesn't know what he's talking about. And far worse, he's being deceptive. Or the message that God is providing can be understood as clearly seen. In other words, one cannot make the statement that he's lying without saying, I fully understand it, right? How do you know someone's lying if you don't know the truth? So you think you know the truth. No one can claim at the judgment seat, I didn't understand. That's what John is saying. You can't call God a liar if you don't understand. The problem is you don't understand. <laughs> and there's no middle ground here. Failure to accept Jesus as God's son is to accuse God of being one who tells lies. Ouch. That's a real problem. That's a real problem because in Numbers 23, it says God is not a man that he should lie. Titus tells us in Titus 2, 1 verse 2, God does not lie. And that's the case here. Ironically, who's the liar? According to 1 John verse 2, let's just look at it. Look at 1 John verse 2. Who is the liar? Verse 22. 
Who is the liar? But the person who denies that Jesus is the Christ. <laughs> because ultimately, your father is the father of lies, and that is the Antichrist, ultimate Satan. Is no, 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 no. We have a testimony within us that is true. We understand these things, and that is glorious. And we talked two weeks ago about the beauty of knowing our God and all that that comes, but John is not done. Another blessing, he states in verse 11, that he has given us eternal life, and the life is in his Son. <laughs> this message is imparting life, and I would argue not just for eternity, but even here now, John 5 Jesus states, I tell you the solemn truth, the one who hears my message and believes, the one who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. They have crossed over from death to life. You deny the son, John is very clear, you forego eternal life. Why? Because Jesus stated, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. So where are you this morning? Where is Jesus? What do you do with this one who has been testified historically through the Spirit and God himself? This is not a time to play games. God takes this very seriously. And the text is very clear. The one who has the Son, verse 12, has eternal life. The one who does not have the Son of God does not. Notice he says Son of God here, which is stressing once again God's role in this. You do not have eternal life. The victories that come, the victory over sin, the victory over death that comes in eternal life is reserved for those who have faith in this Jesus. And so this morning I challenge you, for those of us who know Christ as our Savior, there's a third implication here. The Lord's presence in our lives gives us joy for today and hope for the future. This serves as a wonderful reminder that no detail of our lives is too insignificant for our Lord's attention, nor is any circumstance so big that he cannot control it. We are his. And there's a day coming when we will spend eternity with him. Corey Timboom. Many of you know she uh, hid Jews during World War II. Most of her family were killed in concentration camps. She survived. You may know The Hiding Place, a film that was based off of one of her books. She makes this statement, and it's great. When a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't throw away the ticket and jump off. You sit still and trust the engineer. We serve a God who has conquered <laughs> he is victorious. And we have entered into a relationship with him and he's promised eternal life. And so for the believer, we rest in knowing this Jesus. He is our victor. He is the Lord. He is our savior. He is our redeemer. He is the alpha and omega, the one who was, who is, and the one who is yet to come. He is the all-powerful one. That's our Lord. That is the one we place our faith in. No wonder John can state this is the conquering power that has conquered the world, our faith. Our faith in Jesus, who is the Son of God. It's fitting this morning that we come to communion, as is our custom the first 
Sunday of every month, and hopefully you've received all of it in one combo. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but communion, in, in many ways, is a testimony to what Christ has accomplished for us. That's why th this is for believers this morning. If you don't know Jesus, then you've, you've not entered into this relationship with Christ. The ramifications of understanding that he came, he died, and he rose from the dead. I'd like to spend a little bit of time in just prayer. Taking a little bit of evaluation for us of who know Christ. How are we doing with this Jesus? Are we living as ones who are victorious? Or are we going back to the things of the world, the old ways, and not moving in a direction that we need to be moving in? Remember John 3 said, a believer doesn't sin. And we talked about that. I think John is saying sin should be so foreign to the believer. <laughs> it's like oil and water. So this morning, let's spend some time just of turning those things over to the Lord. has given us blessed assurance. <laughs> Our faith is secure because it's rooted in your Son. Stamped with approval from the Holy Spirit and graciously overseen by you. Lord, we thank you. Father, it's, it's easy in the busyness of life and all the struggles, etc., that come to forget the victory that we have through Jesus, the assurance that we have when the storms come, the questions rise. Lord, this morning we come to you in the name of your Son, our Savior. And we're reminded yet once again that it was at the cross where Jesus' body and his blood were spilled out for us so that we could have a relationship, so that we could live victorious lives. Forgive us for falling short. Give us the strength to move forward. And Lord, what a day it will be when we'll be in your presence, singing worthy is the lamb that was slain for us. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 says, For I received from the Lord... I've also passed on to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And after he had given thanks, he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
body was crushed. <laughs> and John was there. John the Apostle was there at the foot of the cross. He saw it all. He understands the love that was bestowed. And I have a feeling that these words were often rehearsed by him as Paul states here, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this every time you drink it in remembrance of me. And I love what Paul says at the conclusion of that. He says, for every time you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And that's what John is saying. We have a life that awaits, a life that's full here, but oh, what a day when we'll be in the presence of our Savior. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son, Jesus. And despite what the world might want to say or how they reserve the name as a cuss word, <laughs> We know what that name means. It is so precious and it's so glorious. And Lord, what a day when we will fall at your son's feet. Lord, we long for that day. Until then, may we be found faithful servants of yours, living a life, claiming that life that is victorious because of your son in whose name we pray. Jesus. Amen.